find ourselves today in Genesis chapter 9. So if you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 9. And before we begin, I would like to just pray one more time and commit this time uh, to the Lord. So would you, would you pray with me? Uh, Father in heaven, you are holy, you are righteous, you are good and just in all that you do. We indeed worship you uh, this morning as King of kings and Lord of lords. We confess before you, Lord, our sinfulness. Uh, we confess our brokenness, Lord. We confess that we are tired, we are weak, and we need your help in these moments uh, to hear your word. Lord, that you would remove distractions from this place, that you would allow us to sit under uh, the authority and sufficiency of your word in a way this morning, Lord, that is, is pleasing to you. Help us to understand uh, what you have here for us in Genesis chapter 9 and that we would apply it to our lives well. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is, does not return void. We do indeed rest in the promises of your word today as your church. And so, Lord, in these moments, we ask that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable before you. And we pray to all of this in your son's holy name. Amen. Um, covenants and promises are an important fabric of society and, and the world that we live in. So much of what we depend on, just in human life in general, depends on the word of men. Um, our constitution as a country is essentially a covenant promise. Our marriages are bound together by a covenant promise. Uh, businesses and, and so many parts of our world are bound up in people keeping their word. Uh, and yet, we've all had promises broken, uh, and we have all broken promises ourselves. And when we think about the promises of God, and more specifically his covenants, uh, we know that his promises are true, as we just sung about, that he is faithful to keep his word. He's faithful to keep his promises, but his promises, his covenant, also accomplishes something. God's works in and through his covenant promises uh, he works in and through his covenant promises to bring about the redemption and restoration of a broken world. Uh, we've talked about uh, regularly as we've walked through these first several chapters of Genesis of the grand narrative of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we will find today that the covenant promises of God are of extreme importance in this Story. And so today we conclude the flood narrative by coming to Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, if you would follow along with me there. It says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. 
From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Every aspect of our existence is according to God's grace. We see a phrase here that we have seen several times throughout the story of Genesis so far, and that phrase is, be fruitful and multiply. We see it twice here in the beginning of of chapter 9, and then at the last verse we just read there in verse 7, and this is something that we saw back in the the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, verse 22. God uh, blessing creation in that he... He is giving his blessing for all created beings to multiply and fill the earth. But there's also a sense of this being a command, that God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And this idea is mentioned half a dozen times throughout the story so far. Uh, We've seen evidence of the multiplication in in a genealogy in chapter 5, sons and daughters being born, men filling the earth. And back in chapter 1, we said that the reason we exist is for God's glory alone. And so in this multiplication that we see happening here in these first nine chapters of Genesis, of animals and humans alike, we see that God is expanding his glory throughout creation. And so we, especially as humans, exist for the increase of God's glory and fame in this world. And so in this increase, in the blessing, in the command, be fruitful and multiply, God gives us provision to do so, a provision of his grace. And we get a glimpse of that here in these first few verses, Uh, primarily in verses 2 through 6. We see a provision of protection, we see a provision of food, and we see a provision of justice that will allow Noah and his family to uh, multiply and fill the earth. First, notice the provision of protection. Verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast. God instilling something in the created beast as a provision for the flourishing of human life. That he puts fear in the animals of man. And there's a lot of theories and ideas of what exactly is happening here. I want to just recommend one idea to help us understand potentially what God has in mind as he does this. As Noah and his family come out of the ark, they are outnumbered by the beast. And we know that when it comes to multiplication, animals multiply at a greater, uh, uh, more rapid rate than humans do. And so potentially in a very uh, short amount of time, Noah and his family will see themselves outnumbered and overwhelmed by the creatures of the field. And so God places a fear in these animals to help them to uh, survive. We also see here a provision of food. Before the flood, we believe that man was only eating plants, uh, but now we see that it appears God has opened up all of the animal world for food as well, and we see a prohibition in this in in verse 4. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Interestingly, there's a lot of similarities and parallelism here in chapter 9 to the creation narrative. 
where there in chapter 3, God tells Adam to, he can eat from every tree of the garden except for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now we come here to chapter 9 where we see again where uh, potentially, if you, if you will, the world is recreated and God gives another type of prohibition that you can eat of these things but not in this particular way. God providing the provision of food to Noah and his family. But we also see a provision of justice in verse 6. There earlier in verse 5 that says, God says, I will require a reckoning. We see here a God-ordained justice that is to be carried out by man. That there is justice and order that is to happen in this world. Righteous laws and righteous rules that comes from the nature and character of God. And so we see here talk of the blood of animals, but then the talk of blood of men. And at the end of verse 6, it reminds us again that man is created in the image of God. We see the importance of the life of the image bearer. Uh, In Exodus chapter 21, uh, the law is given that if your ox gores your neighbor, you are to then kill the ox. That God will require the blood of the animal that caused the death to the image bearer. And what the writer is saying to us here is if this is true of an animal, that blood is required for the one that kills the image bearer, how much more so is this true for your brother? Look there about halfway through verse 5. My translation says, From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning from the life of man. That word there is the word brother. This is the first time we've seen the word brother used since chapter 4. What happened in chapter 4? Well, chapter 4 is all about what? Two brothers. One of which killed the other. And if you remember there, Cain is concerned that people will come and get vengeance against him. And God places a mark on him and says, no, vengeance is mine. But now we see God placing the responsibility of justice on man. Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. If someone murders, they must be held accountable by their own blood. Encouraging the promotion of life, the value of life. So in these verses, we see God providing protection, providing sustenance for man by the spilt blood of of animals. And God providing a means of justice, namely what we would consider the death penalty, to promote life between people. God is the one who gives us life. He is the provider of all that we have that allows us to thrive in this world. This provision of life is a grace of God, and it is something that is even for the unbeliever to experience. The common grace of God, the breath in our lungs, the food in our bellies is all of God. John Murray is a Presbyterian theologian who asked two questions in regards to the common grace of God. Listen to what he said. He said, How is it that men who still lie under the wrath and curse of God and are heirs of hell enjoy so many good gifts at the hands of God? How is it that this sin-cursed world enjoys so much favor and kindness at the hand of its holy and ever-blessed Creator? Now, for a lost and dying world, potentially the common grace of God does not mean much for them. Maybe they, at some level, acknowledge that God has provided for them. But for those of us who are believers today, the understanding that God is the one who gives 
everything to us is a profound reality. This realization should cause us as the people of God to revel in the glorious grace of the God who has called us to be his own. All that we have is from him. And we rejoice in that today. Every breath in our lungs, every beat of our heart, every cent in our bank account, every crumb in our pantry comes from the good grace of God alone. And we celebrate that in our lives each and every day. And he alone deserves our praise and our affections. Practically, though, the, ver- the, the passage here tells us of how we consider these blessings of God. We think about food and the provision that God gives us uh, with the food in our bellies, and this has implications on how we eat. That we should live differently from the world, including in how we view food, not living in excess and, and gluttony. If we're honest, the American culture is all about excess and gluttony and consumerism. How much stuff can I get in this life? And we outsource this to the world. Uh, There's some research that has been done that shows that countries where McDonald's has not yet been established has little to no obesity. But then once you introduce the golden arches to a country, obesity enters into the culture. This says something about the consumerism and the the excess that we live in as an American culture. And as, as Christians, we should live differently. We do not look to live in excess and gluttony. We look to live content and live reasonable lives in all that we consume. That our hope is not in the things that we possess, but our hope is in the one who gives us those possessions. Are we good stewards of those things? We also see here application of how we view life. Again, we are image bearers. There is value of life in all of creation, and we'll see that here in a moment as God and his covenant Promises not to destroy also the beast of the field, but make no mistake about it, we rise above all of creation as those who are created in the image of God. And we live in a day where a baby seal has more value than the life of a child inside the mother's womb. And this should not be so. And we as the church are the ones, if it is not us, who will be the ones to be the voice of justice for the unborn? We continue our story then in verse 8. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature and of all flesh that is on the earth. 
God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh on the earth. God's great grace is revealed by his covenant with fallen man. These several verses that we just read is full of covenantal promise language. Three times the writer writes, I will establish my covenant. Three times he speaks of the sign of the covenant. Twice the word remember is used. This word remember is is covenantal language. God will establish his covenant. And it is in the flood narrative that we see this word covenant used for the first time. If you remember last week in chapter 6, verse 18, what did God say to Noah? I will establish my covenant with you. And here we see that exposed. We touched on it a little bit as well at the end of chapter 8, where we saw there the God speaking to the the measure of this covenant and what it would mean, and it, it is unfolded here a little bit more before us. This idea of covenant is essential to how we understand the story of the Bible. A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. And again, covenants are crucial to not just the story of Genesis, but the entire story of Scripture. And although this is the first time we've seen the word covenant used, this is not the first time in the story of Genesis that we've talked about the covenant promises of God. We talked about in the beginning what we call the covenant of redemption, that before the creation of time and space, that God had a plan of redemption that was set forth to happen, that was agreed upon by the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That what happens in the garden is not a surprise. That this is all happening according to the perfect will of God in his plan of redemption. We also spoke of the covenant of works there in chapter 3 where God gives the command to Adam there in verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. In this covenant of works, Adam is bound to obey God perfectly. He's promised with life if he obeys God, but he's also promised with death if he disobeys. And we know how the story goes. He disobeys and he dies. Every person that comes then from Adam falls under this covenant of works, whether they deny the existence of God or not. And each and every one of us is a breaker of the covenant. We have broken the covenant of works. We are sinners. We too have eaten of the fruit of the tree. We are broken and fallen and guilty under the covenant of works. And God in his nature is not obligated to give us another chance. He's not obligated to give us another covenant. And yet in chapter 3 we are introduced to the covenant of grace. Where God condescends to cover their nakedness with the the skin of an animal sacrifice. Where he promises a seed, a savior to come. A promise that God will redeem those who are guilty under the covenant of works by grace through faith. And we've seen this over and over again in the story of Genesis. We saw it with Abel. We saw it with Enoch. We saw it last week with Noah. That they were justified by grace. This is a theme of Scripture. A lot of people, and we've, we've talked about this already, uh, tend to think that the people of the Old Testament were saved in a different way than we are in the New Testament. But make no mistake about it, those of the Old Testament were saved by grace through faith, looking forward to a Messiah to come. 
Just as we are saved by grace through faith, looking back to a Messiah who has already come and conquered sin and death. And so the promise here with Noah is part of a broader covenant of grace. And this covenant of grace is progressively revealed more fully through the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant made with Moses, the covenant made with David. And it comes to its fruition in the New Testament where Christ sheds his own blood as a seal of the covenant. Specifically here, though, this covenant is about destruction. And God here is saying that he will never again destroy the earth by the flood. We saw this last week in chapter 8, verse 21. We see it mentioned here twice in verse 11 and verse 15. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. This covenant is not dependent on man, but it is solely based on the gracious protection of God over all of creation. And it is marked by a sign. Signs in Scripture take various forms. We see the miraculous. We see customs and traditions as signs of things that are appointed by God to point to his activity and his purpose in this world and among his chosen people. Later we'll see where circumcision is a sign of the covenant. And here the sign is a rainbow in the sky. Interestingly, when we see the rainbow in the sky, it tends to serve as a reminder to us of this story and God's promise. And yet, what does the writer communicate here? He says that the rainbow serves as a reminder not to us, but to God, lest he forget. This word remember should sound familiar to you from last week in chapter 8, verse 1, when it said God remembered Noah. And there we mentioned that the writer is using weak and human terms to try to communicate something about an incomprehensible God. God remembering describes his faithfulness to keep his promises. He is not in need of reminder. Rather, what the writer is communicating to us here is that he will not forget. He will not forget his promise. He will not forget his covenant. When I was a child, my mom decorated me and my brother's bathroom in a Noah's Ark theme. And we had a little lamp on the sink, and there's all these cute, cuddly animals with smiles. And Noah and his wife were very happy to be there in the ark. And the shower curtain was bright colors and And every animal and person that is portrayed on the shower curtain is happy and jovial. And I remember becoming older and thinking to myself, I wonder if this is the appropriate way to portray this story. Is the story of Noah's Ark a a bedtime story? The story that we've just walked through is a terrifying story. It is a story of God's wrath on full display, a righteous and just and good wrath. There have been several paintings that have portrayed the flood in a more honest sense. One of them is by a painter named Gustave Doré, and in it, he, there, there's a rock that is being overwhelmed by the rising floodwaters, and on top of the rock there is a tiger with her baby cub in her mouth. And in the water there are two uh, what appear to be parents pushing their children up onto the rock to try and spare them. And in the water there are 
the corpses of those who have drowned. This is the picture of the flood. The rising water of the wrath of God. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And yet this is the beauty of God's covenant promise. Where we deserve death, he works on our behalf to give us life. And people will often say, it is not fair that God would send anyone to hell. But friend, let me encourage you this morning. What isn't fair is that God would send anyone to heaven. We all deserve to be consumed in the water and the flood of God's wrath. And yet he works on our behalf. I'm going to say something that's going to shock you, so stay with me for a moment. We are saved by works. Not our own works but the works of Christ on our behalf at the cross. He comes and he condescends and he dies a death that he did not deserve in our place. And the glorious news of the covenant of grace this morning is if you believe in the blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, you will be saved and rescued from those floodwaters. This is what we call the covenant of grace. We are the covenant people of God by grace through faith in him. Praise be to God. We conclude our story of the flood, picking up in verse 18. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, "'Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers.'" He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. In these closing verses, we see here that Noah does not bring relief from the fall. Lest you were not aware... The writer, again, tells us the names of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He's repeated this time and time again, and yet he reminds us again, a reminder that these are real people and real life, and we worship a God who saves in time and space. We see here that they were the ones who, through them, the whole earth was dispersed. The whole earth was populated. Again, the language of being fruitful and multiplying And the writer tells us here that Noah became a worker of the ground. The last person in this story that's mentioned to be a worker of the ground was Cain. This soil, this dirt, this ground serves as a constant reminder of the fall. And so if you thought that this whole flood thing was going to fix it, you were wrong. 
If there's any hope to be found in Noah, clinging to the prayer of his father Lamech in chapter 5, verse 29, where he said, Lord, please let this be the one who brings relief. Please let this be the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Immediately we see dysfunction. Noah doing something that is corrupt. He takes the good gift of the vineyard that God has given him and he abuses it. Scripture makes it clear that drunkenness is not befitting of the people of God. And that nakedness is demeaning and not compatible with being in God's presence. In fact, there are several times in the Old Testament where both of these, nakedness and drunkenness, are mentioned together as debauchery. We see this in Habakkuk 2.15, Lamentations 4.21. God does not delight in drunkenness and debauchery. We also see that something is done wrong by his son Ham. And as Westerners, as Westerners, it's hard for us to kind of pinpoint what he's done wrong because we've kind of been desensitized to the idea of nakedness in our culture. We don't tend to have a high view of authority and respecting our elders in Western culture. But there's something to be said here about respectfully covering up his father, having discretion, having respect for his dad, and instead he simply looks at him and publicizes it to his brothers. Instead of being a man and taking the initiative to resolve the problem, he gossips about it. He dishonors his father's name. And the fact that Ham was in the wrong here is, is, is implied by the few words the writer uses to describe what he did. In the Old Testament, when the writers want to show us that the person is in the wrong, they don't tell us much detail about what they did. And all it says there in verse 22 is that he saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers. Contrast that to the drawn-out discourse then that's given of what the brothers did. Look at all the details there. Verse 23, took a garment laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward, covered the nakedness of their father, their faces were turned backwards, they did not see their father's nakedness. These two brothers handled the situation with dignity and respect. There's a lot of debate here as to what has happened and, and trying to read into the text that something sexual happened here. I think the plain meaning of the text is that we just see dysfunction on display in this family. Something else that's important here is Ham is mentioned to be the father of Canaan three times. The Canaanites, if you know the story of Israel, will come to represent the complete opposite of the Israelites, the chosen people of God. They are the antithesis of the Israelites. Again, emphasizing the line of promise and God's desire for his people to live in holiness set apart from the nations. And then we see here a blessing of the sons and the cursing of the one. This is something that is common throughout the Old Testament, the blessing and the cursing of a father. We're going to see this play out several times in Genesis, the line of promise versus the line of cursing. And again, we are reminded that God is the one who gives and takes away. He is a sovereign father and he gives according to his perfect will. He has the right and the wisdom and the power to do all that he pleases. But then notice how the story ends in verse 28. Three words that should sound very familiar to you for those of you who have been walking through Genesis with us. And he died. This takes us back directly to Genesis chapter 5 where we saw the, the genealogy and eight times it said of Adam and his descendants. And he died. If you remember in verse 32... 
It doesn't finish the pattern of the genealogy with Noah. It just simply says Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we get the story of the flood, and the writer at the conclusion of the story finishes off the pattern of the genealogy in verse 29. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. It is as if the writer is saying to us here, this is not the one you are looking for. There's a better Noah who is to come. Relief will not come through the son of Lamech. And we stand and we, we rejoice today as the church that we look back to a Savior to come. And we, we look back in faith to the fact that sin has already been conquered at the cross and the resurrection of Christ. Relief has come. There's no longer this expectation of the coming of Messiah. He has come. He has conquered sin and death. It is finished. I think back to when I was a child in school, and, and I hated school. And I, I, I think about sitting in the, the carpool lane at the end of the day, waiting for my mom to, to pull up, to take me home, to bring me that relief that I so desperately needed from school. And sitting there, and as every car came, and it wasn't my mother, the, the burden of, oh, when will relief come? Will, when will relief come? And then finally my mom pulls up, and I get into the car, and I buckle in, and the relief that comes over me knowing that my mom finally came. The hope that I had that she was coming and resting in the fact that she had come. Again, this is the truth for us today as the church. Christ has come. He has conquered sin and death. It is finished. Relief from the curse has, has come. And yet, we still live in a fallen and broken world. Each and every day, we experience the effects of the curse. And our problem is we tend to look to ourselves to bring about relief in our circumstances instead of looking to the one who's already brought us relief at the cross. Are you working in just your day-to-day -day life as a Christian to try and bring relief to the tension of the curse in your life? I think of parenting. Trying to parent in your own power and strength out of fear and anxiety instead of trying to rest in the promises of God and who he is in you. I'm guilty of this. Being harsh with my kids getting on to my kids for things that I probably shouldn't get on to them for because I'm resting in myself and I'm basing my discipline on fear and anger instead of resting in the goodness of who God is and what he has done and the promises that he has made. May we be people who live in the promise of the gospel in all that we do and the tension of the world that we live in. And so as we come to the conclusion of the flood narrative here in Genesis chapter 9, we are reminded today that this is a story of great tragedy, but it is also a story of great hope. That we serve a God who makes covenant and keeps covenant with his people. And so may we be a church and families and individuals that live in the hope of a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Let's pray.